Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Kidnor, founder of leading Australian podcast agency, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Today's episode discusses mental health and may be triggering for some listeners. If you need support, help is available. Contact Lifeline on 131114. Hello, peers, and welcome back to the Peers to Peers podcast powered by Shopify. When we say high school never ends, we're usually lamenting over somebody's childish demeanor, but we rarely stop to reflect on the space that perpetuates this kind of behavior in the first place. If high school never ends, at what point do we begin to challenge the unhealthy behaviours that stem from it? Today's guest, Samantha Pratt, knows the silence that sits within these questions all too well. The feelings of loneliness that engulfed her as a teen and frustrations that propelled her into a career in education as an adult. But more questions needed to be answered, so Samantha went on to start Click Engage, an organisation that uses SEL to limit the impact of complex trauma on student achievement. In today's episode, Samantha reflects on her path from teacher to entrepreneur, why teachers aren't always the problem, and how Click Engage is challenging the questions we ask others. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, now over to Sam. Samantha, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Hi, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Amazing. So, you know, you and I recently connected and when I looked into you and all of the amazing work that you're doing in the ed tech space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. I love to do things like this and talk a little bit more about my journey and in my why. I love it. Amazing. So for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Yeah, so um, my name is Samantha Pratt, and I'm CEO and founder of Click Engage. Um, it's an ed tech company, and we work to change the way that children communicate their emotions and receive support. Um, I was not somebody who wanted to be an entrepreneur. I actually have a um, really varied background, but about 10 years now in the education sector, and I was a former teacher, which actually led to, to my current work with, with Click Engage. So, so interesting, Sam. You know, when I looked into you and saw that you were fifth grade or year five, however you want to say it, teacher for I think it was about four years or so. Um, it was just so interesting to see that you made that switch and, you know, into entrepreneurship and starting your own business, which is a beast of its own, as we all, as we all know. So I can't wait to dive a bit deeper into that with you today. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Yeah, that is a really good question. And it's actually a really direct implication for what I do now. So um, I grew up, and I always say split between Cleveland and Memphis, Tennessee. So Cleveland, Ohio and Memphis, Tennessee. And um, I lived in Cleveland until I was about 10. And then my mom um, uprooted me and my sister, and we moved down to Memphis. So I spent middle school and high school there. Um what was really interesting about that is I had, I mixed to my mom's way, but, and I am um, white and black. And the reason that matters is because I moved from like the Midwest, which isn't exactly like the most progressive place in the U S but it was a lot more normalized there, like interracial relationships, things like that to the deep South, um, the historically deep South that is still very much uh, segregated and racism is loud and proud down there. Um, so I went from this place where it was like something I hadn't really picked up on yet at, at 10 years old to this place where people made very overt comments to me and my mom. And um, it was really striking to, to enter that world. And it really was something I saw a lot in my educational experience. I um, luckily was somebody who did very, very well in school. And even though we were very low income, um, I actually ended up getting a scholarship when I was in middle school that allowed me to attend um, a private school. And in the deep South, what that really translates into is I went from a school that was majority black, a public school, to a school that was 99.9% .9 white <laughs> and, and I was low income. And so I felt really out of place there. And I also felt like my teachers didn't really understand my context um, where I was working twice as hard to get half as far all the time. So in my family needed my support and financially as well. So I was working almost full time in high school um, on top of be doing all AP classes and in every club possible and running and playing varsity sports. And so I was really spread thin and it took a huge toll on my, my mental health when I was in high school. And the issue I had as an adult with this was that nobody in my immediate circle um, supported me. And I don't mean, some people it was unintentional. My mom didn't really know how to support me. Um, she remembers like once as a kid taking me to the pediatrician and being like, Sam seems a little bit more stressed or high strung than other kids, right? But they just wrote it off as me being a perfectionist and they were like, she'll grow out of it. So my mom didn't really know what to do there. And then um, the school I was at was used to dealing with 
wealthier, upper class kids that aren't dealing with as many external stressors as I was. And so when I started to fall asleep in school, um, I, instead of people asking what's going on at home, they just thought they started to write me off as a lazy student, which didn't make any sense because I was taking seven AP classes. It just made, it just showed a huge gap in the teacher's knowledge. All that to say, these experiences stuck with me. And even though I didn't get the support, it, mental health support that I needed in real time, then I eventually did get it when I went to college um, because my health took a turn and I ended up developing a panic disorder. So the years of stress I had experienced through my childhood um, finally culminated into a pretty severe panic disorder that I had to get treatment for. And then I like college services are generally pretty great. They kind of like, they're there, it's easy to get to, you know, which building to go to, it was all very accessible. And, and I was able to kind of come out in a more positive way. Um, but it always stuck with me. It always really bothered me that I never had a teacher ask me what was going on or how, how I was doing. Right? It always really bothered me how long it took for me to get the help that I needed. And it really wasn't lost on me that I was somebody who copes by throwing myself into my schoolwork. And so I was high functioning. What happens to the kids that don't do that well? Right. And so that was something that always kind of sat with me. And then, yeah. And then when I went on to become a teacher, um, I always had those things in the back of my mind. And then I started to see these problems manifesting themselves in real time with my students in my classroom. And I was like, we cannot continue to just push kids through and we're going to keep seeing lost generations. Um, there's, there's a reason suicide rates get higher and higher and higher every year, right? We're just, we're losing kids. And if we don't do something sooner, um, there's going to be a whole nother generation of adults that, that aren't equipped to handle life stress. Oh my goodness, Sam. We so appreciate you sharing that all with us. Oh my goodness. It's, it's so interesting looking back. It must be so interesting looking back for you and just kind of internalizing all the things you were going through as a teenager. You know, I think from the racial, you know, situation and I'm also of mixed race and my mum's white, my dad's black. So that's so interesting. So I, you know, I, I, in so many ways do I identify with what you're saying, but I think the fact that the place you were in in Tennessee with it being so segregated and, and so intense there and then plus everything else you had to deal with, which obviously culminated into your kind of mental health struggles, you know, how do we, when we're growing up and we're just trying to figure out who we are and t- trying to fit in and trying to make it work, how do we get through this time? How do we navigate this time? You know, I think for so many of our peers out there listening, we're all struggling in some respects and it can be so hard when no one's there to give us a helping hand. What are some things we can do to get through it? Oh, that's a, that's a big and tough question. I think, um, so my, my approach has been to, to kind of bring services more to kids to normalize, um, coping strategies and, um, but like really help kids build self-awareness and self-regulation around their emotional well-being. I think that that was not a conversation I ever heard growing up, like never talked about those pieces of my identity. And then, so for my, my organization, that's what we're aiming to do. And then we also try to remind adults that like, I think there's this, this misconception in, in terms, and this goes for everybody. You don't have to be like the adult in a child's life, but even just peer to peer, right? Like something that's really important that people take for granted is that like most people 
are looking for a place and a stage and a platform to talk about how they're doing. They're just waiting for somebody to ask the right question. And we overanalyze, like, what are people willing to share? Am I crossing lines? Am I doing this thing? And like, there's this weird misconception that like kids don't want to talk about how they're doing, but that's actually completely false. And like most kids are actually looking for someone to ask them what's going on. Um, so I think if we can remember that, and that's, this goes for everybody, like even just like your best friend or your neighbor, or whatever, like sometimes just taking a pause and be like, hey, how are you really doing? People are oftentimes looking for that conversation to be had. So I think if we just open up spaces and places for people to talk about what's going on with them, we also are then setting the stage for them to ask and seek out help. Um, whereas if everyone's second guessing what they're doing and what they're saying with, with each other when it comes to these conversations, um, nothing real is really is going to hit the surface, right? So I think it's a very small approach we can all take to to supporting um, each other, but also like the adolescents and, and youth in our lives as well. Why don't we do more of that? You know, why do we say, how are you? How are you going? And um, we don't really care what the response is. Oh my gosh. I was thinking about this a lot. Um, I don't have like the deep understanding of like where, where this all comes from. I do have like a little bit of a theory from like a social psychology standpoint. It's just more of um, it's one of those things that becomes patternized and so that we start to say it and then we don't have our own mental space to accept the answers. Um, and it's off-putting if somebody does <laughs> give you a true answer. So it's, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. If somebody doesn't say one of those two things, you're like, oh, oh I didn't actually want it now, right? It's like confusing. Um, I think it's just like a little bit of like cognitive dissonance. You're like, oh my God, what's happening? Um, but I, I experimented with this a lot. I recently had, I have a four month old. He's amazing. He's like a little bundle of joy. But um, while I was pregnant, I had so many bad days. Like you, you, most of the time you're not feeling great. Like you're, you're super pregnant. And so I, people would ask like, oh my gosh, how are you feeling? How are you doing? And it's like, you're asking this of a, of a nine month pregnant person. Like, I don't know what you think. I'm going to say, but I had like, I decided to completely take the filter off. So anytime someone asked me for my entire third trimester, how I was feeling, I was honest as well. Well, this morning I had acid reflux. I had, well, again, I would just tell people things. Right. And I was ex really experimenting with like, you don't bother me by asking me how I'm feeling only for me to give you what you want to hear. Cause like, I wonder what happens when you start telling people how you actually feel and like what, so I experimented with that a lot. And it was really funny. Some people were like, oh, <laughs> what do I do? I was like, no, actually, I'm exhausted. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm actually, it's crazy. I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm exhausted. I feel terrible. And, like, and then people don't know what to do. But what I also found was like the more I did that, then people people started, it also opened doors for other folks too. So some people were just like, oh my goodness, like that, like we talked about that cognitive dissonance piece. But I think there was a large number of people that I was always surprised by that would say, oh yeah, when I had my baby, I felt that way. Or when this thing happened, I, I felt the way I heard a lot. And they would start to relate their own feelings and emotions to the thing I was naming. Whereas if I would have just thought like, oh, I'm good, I'm fine. Then that door would have stayed closed, right? And we wouldn't have been able to build that, that empathy. So I think for some people, it didn't, it didn't really work and it was like confusing for them, but I do think that it made them pause. Um, and people said that sometimes they're like, oh my gosh, I asked that question and I don't always think what, think about what I'm saying. And it makes people pause and really think about that. And then on the other side, for some, a lot of folks, it opened up a door for empathy. Amazing. So look, Sam, I just want to ask you one final question on this before we move on. And that is, you know, how do you 
gain the courage to actually speak up in those situations, whether it's when you were pregnant now and your ability to speak up now or whether it was when you were a teenager battling, you know, uh, the mental health issue and, and just trying to get through it all. How did you gain the courage to speak up and how can we get better at doing that? Yeah, I think a huge piece of, I can speak to now, right? So I think a huge piece of of why I feel so confident speaking up in so many different spaces now is my sense of self has really evolved over time. And I think that I have become confident as a person, as a woman, as an individual, and I have effectively dealt with my, with my childhood traumas and all of the different things that um, were negatively impacting me on a daily basis, even when I didn't know it. And so it was doing that work over the last 10 years that really has put me in a place where I feel comfortable and safe being vulnerable, no matter where I'm at. Um, As a teenager, I didn't, I didn't have that space. I didn't have that confidence and I never, I didn't have the courage to speak up about what I was feeling and doing um, or needed really. And I think what would have been helpful in, in gaining that, that confidence back then, or even knowing that I, that's what I needed was, was to speak up, right. And to be heard. Um, even knowing that is something I was, I was lacking. And I think what would have helped me would have been the, having the behavior modeled. If I had seen more adults in my life asking for help, if I had seen more of the adults in my spaces, um, modeling positive coping strategies, if I had seen more people concerned with emotional well-being and and relaying the connections it has to other aspects of my life, I would have then realized what I, I would have known what I didn't know, right? And I think that that is so important. And that's the only thing we could really do for teenagers. And this is true for so many things that they go through. But if we, if the adults around them can model uh, positive behaviors um, and demonstrate what it looks like to be vulnerable and that that's an okay thing to do, then there's going to be more teenagers that are comfortable doing that. I couldn't agree more. Amazing. So I want to dive a bit deeper into the story, you know, so you've had a really tough time in high school. You've now graduated and you're heading off to New York. You I think you went to New York University. I think it was a Bachelor of Applied Psychology then later on, you went to study your master's in education at Harvard, two amazing schools. Talk to us a little bit about what that time in college was like for you, how you navigated through getting the help you needed. And then I guess how that, you know, how that propelled you into kind of into the education space and into ultimately what you're doing now. Yeah. So I am somebody that runs on all cylinders. It definitely contributed in high school to my to my mental health struggles because I, I did suffer from anxiety. And and that's, if you're somebody who's going, going, going constantly, it's going to make it worse. And so in college, um, that I just had like an open landscape of opportunities to burden myself with tons and tons and tons of responsibility. And so I, I came into college, like very, I'm very type A person. It's also why like I run a company now, but I like came into high, into college with an Excel spreadsheet of every course I would need to take over the four years with multiple different scenario sets. So that I knew if I was like, if I'm going to study abroad, if I do a summer program, if I do these things, like this is how my courses should be mapped out. 
And that was me entering as a freshman, right? So I was like really on top of my game, but also to like a little bit of an extreme. And I um, immediately got there and I was like, okay, I want to, I want to volunteer, but I also had to like make money. So I was also babysitting and nannying. And then I was also working like internships. I remember applying for summer internships in November of my freshman year of college. And I got the internships I got because they were like, we haven't even listed them on our site yet. So you're the first applicant. Like that was the person I was and am to an extent to this day. Um, And so that kind of energy has served me in terms of like academic and professional life, but it was just draining. I was already on E, right? And it was just emptying me out further and I didn't realize it at the time so I but I went through my whole freshman year and I was feeling really I was in New York which also um a lot of NYU students if you ever talk to another one they'll tell you this is like a commonality I like got dropped in New York from from Tennessee so like no sunshine and then like this you're in a college that's not a standard traditional college uh, campus or atmosphere. So the sense of community is lacking too. So on top of being like super busy all the time, I also was feeling really disconnected and a little bit lonely. And so all of that was freshman year. And then I went into, I spent an entire summer isolated. So the internship I ended up doing was like in New Haven in Connecticut and I like rent subletted an apartment in a city where there I didn't know anyone at an internship where everyone was like over 50 so I was by myself for three months just like trying to like work out and learn to cook and like do all these things um so I came into my sophomore year of college like pretty in in a weird place and I, I would say a fragile place and I didn't know it and True to my Excel sheet, I had this plan for a sophomore year. I was going to do all these courses, the hardest courses for my major, all at once, get them all over with, call it a day. And as you can imagine, on on such low on such a low battery, I ended up kind of spiraling out. And so what happened was I was struggling really financially. A lot of my jobs and internships were in like Harlem and I lived in the Lower East Side of uh, New York City. And what that means just to translate for people, (laughs) it was not walkable, walkable, right? And so I had to rely on subway transit, which for most people like 250 for a subway ticket, one way with no big deal. But I was like paying for my food, all of these kinds of things. It wasn't like I was getting help from my parents um, in college. So all my money was going to like basic necessities. So there was days where I had to jog three hours to work and like try to play it off, like wearing a full Nike outfit. Like I just really wanted to work out today. Like, and so all of these things, right, going on. And so by first end of the first semester of my sophomore year, I, really, I was having a lot of panic attacks and I didn't know that's what they were. So um, that was also really scary too. I just would start, start to feel like very overwhelmed, even when I was doing the most mundane tasks. And so because it was happening when I wasn't expecting it, like I wasn't like immediately stressed in that moment. So I thought, right. Um, I was like, what is going on? Like there's something wrong with my heart. Like it was like very confusing. One of my roommates in college, I was like laying face down on the floor in our bedroom because I was like, I felt like my body, like I couldn't ground myself. And now I know what was happening. I was having a panic attack, but my chest felt heavy. I like felt like I couldn't ground myself. And I was like, I'll be fine. I don't have time to deal with this because I'm like a test tomorrow. I'm just going to lay face down on the floor until I feel grounded again. Like it was, (laughs) I didn't know what I was doing, but my roommate like walked in and she was like, that's it. Like I can't. I don't know what's happening, but this is not okay. And she like got her RA. Our RA was like, 
So now I have to call like the hospital and it was this whole thing um, because I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't just tell them it was like a panic attack. So they came in and they like did, did a whole, a whole workup and they're like, I don't really know what's going on. Um, let's like just follow up with the student health center. And so then I started seeing the doctors, the student health center. I probably saw like four doctors before someone finally figured out what was happening. Um, but what was confusing everyone is I was having chronic panic attacks. So they are patternized. So what that means is I could have three to five in a day and it really, and it could be over nothing, but it was happening at the same time. So every time I went to sit at my work desk in my, in my dorm suite, um, I would have a panic attack every time. If I had had one before while I was taking a shower, I'd have a panic attack every time I took a shower. And so it started, it almost seemed like it was a health condition because of how frequently it was happening. Um, so that's why it took so, so long to get those supports. So at this point, I'm in the health center. I'm seeing all these doctors. And again, we all, we finally figure out what's, what's going on. And then by nature of me having been like deeply involved with the health center at that point, um, I am able to get connected to the mental health services. So it was like a weird, the reason it was missed, right, is I, as I was mentioning, is because the panic attacks were happening so frequently, it read as a health condition. So um, so patternized panic disorder is like when you sit down to eat a sandwich, if you have a panic attack, the next time you sit down to eat a sandwich, you're going to have a panic attack. So like it wasn't making sense. So, so they'd be like, what are you feeling when you have a panic attack? And I'd be like, I was watching the Super Bowl. I was actually pretty chill. And I was like, I don't know. So it didn't resonate with the doctors as with all the descriptions that it was a panic attack until we finally like they had me see a cardiologist. They were like, they had appointments with a neurologist. I was like, this feels excessive. Um, so somebody along the way figures it out. Um, and then I was recommended to the mental health services at NYU, which were actually really phenomenal. And um, what I think was coolest about that journey for me was um, I was a psych major. So I, I was a applied psychology major, meaning a higher focus on research and, and statistics and um, really looking at the different different ways psychology can be leveraged. If I'm being transparent as NYU, there was like two programs, a psych program and then an applied psych. And the general psych program was used usually for like pre-med, pre-law, those kinds of folks. So um, I was in the track that was like actually on the pathway to, to do psychology and PhD work. Um, but that was important because when I would sit in classes, like I would be learning about these the disorders in the DSM-5, like the diagnostic book. And, and I was like, man, a lot of these things like sound like what I'm de dealing with, right? And so that that's where that self-reflective piece started to come in. And then it was like everything that I had going on health-wise along with me starting to see myself in some of my coursework um, made it so that when I was, they said, maybe try a counselor. I was like, actually, I think that that's, that is the right pathway forward for me. Um, unfortunately for my counselor, I had a really good grasp on like medications and types of therapies and all these things. So I was very, she'd be like this thing. I was like, that's not going to work for me. Like I was like very critical of my process, but that's something just as an aside, I recommend to everyone, you do have autonomy when it comes to your selection of therapists. Some people like get overwhelmed by that process. Like you can interview them. There could be ones that's not that you can like decide, like fire a psychologist or a therapist because that space is supposed to be safe for you. And it won't be if you don't feel comfortable. Um, but at the time I just knew what I was comfortable with and what I wasn't. And I just made sure I vocalized that. Um, 
And the hardest piece of that journey was actually for my recovery, I had to take medication. That ended up being the solution um, because my physical health was a direct result of years of being overstimulated um, and like producing too much cortisol, all those things, just like constantly being stressed through my whole childhood um, was what was leading to this. So I had to come back down to baseline. And the best way for me to do that was to get on medication, but it was something I wasn't comfortable with. Um, so it took about a year, I want to say a year of counseling, or at least 10 to 12 sessions, like once a month with my counselor before she finally convinced me to go to the psychiatrist in the department and like start to talk to her about meds. Um, and then I was on medication for about a year and a half before I, um, like that, before I felt like I was in a good enough place to be able to, um, be fine and stable and healthy without, without medication. Um, and that's, that's hard. Sometimes some people are on medication forever. I knew that wasn't something I wanted. So I was also seeing, I was seeing my counselor and I was um, seeing the psychiatrist to be on medication. And it was a, it was a really tough journey, but I will say what was, what was interesting is that all those resources were there. Everything was already there and readily available. It was all at my disposal and it was made to be easy. I just had to know where to look for it. Um, and so I think that's something that was a really interesting piece of my journey at NYU. And then it really made me think about like access, right? And so I managed to get the services that I needed, right? But again, the pattern that I've seen, that I saw in high school and then even again in college, it's all about access. Um, and so that really stuck with me. So I started to take courses. I'm sure you could probably guess by now with the things I've already shared about myself, but I had like multiple minors and like some majors. And so I was a major in applied psychology, but I was also an urban education studies minor and a mi I minored in poetry and, and art. Um, so I, um, in my minor, I started to explore, and the reason it kind of came about is I started to explore policy and like thinking about how do we get more kids like me like that didn't have access growing up and didn't ha don't necessarily know to ask for these resources. How do we get more kids access? And that became a big question for me. And I started um, some of the internships I was doing. I did I did one mentoring girls in the juvenile justice system. And and every conversation, the answer to this question about access, it really linked back to the school, the school system, um, because the first line of defense for kids is the school building. Um, so in all the things that happen at home, the one thing we have in common is that we can go to this other space and it's supposed to be where you can ask for help. But it doesn't work always because of resources and capacity, funding, all of these things. And so I became very, very, very committed to the belief that we could end, I believe we could end poverty, we could end societal inequities if we could just get a more equitable education system um, and everybody had equal access. Like, like I really, truly, deeply believe that. And that belief started to guide my choices in terms of career and all those kinds of things. And I decided that I really wanted to have this, this macro level influence at the policy level and try to fix this problem of access to mental health services. But I also know how important it is to be somebody who experiences a problem firsthand before prescribing a solution. So I decided to do Teach for America 
Um, I really wanted to, I didn't want to start telling schools and teachers and, and all of those things how to do better, right? If I had never been there myself in that role. And I had taught like preschool, I was in college and did some, again, million jobs, right? So I did, I had done some work with, uh, in education, but I hadn't been a teacher, right? In a public school, in a community that serves kids experiencing complex traumas. And so I did TSA. Um, I applied a year, a year early. So I, my junior year of college, I got accepted into TFA. As again, I feel like everything I say just validates who I am as a person. I got accepted um, a year early, my junior year, and then my senior year, I was something called they had briefly. It was a program called like Equity Fellows, um, where we got to think about uh, our our identity and how it's going to directly like impact our community and different things like that. And so I had a really I'm not going to lie, it was a pretty cushy senior year in, um, in terms of schedule because, again, back to that Excel sheet I mentioned, but I had planned to study abroad, but instead I did it during the summer. So what ended up happening is all my meticulous planning led to me having like essentially not much to do my senior year of college and then I had already had a job. So I was in a space, um, very lucky to be then in that space, but I was in a space where I could choose how my time would be spent that year. Um, and I ended up writing again in, in, in pattern with this understanding the connection to education and mental health access. I created an independent class and wrote a thesis on the connection between mental health and school engagement, um, which would later become like the foundational research I, I used to build Click Engage. But um, that was the last piece of work I did my academic career before jumping into the classroom. So to say that the, this wasn't a, like this was at the top of mind when I went into my space and I, I knew this problem existed. And then I taught and I realized how many things are constantly happening um, in your mind as a teacher, in your classroom, in your school building, with your students. And even as somebody who I would say after reading 2,700 research articles on this, was considered an expert on this specific topic, I still but failed to, to make connections in my classroom on a daily basis. I, I failed my students in a lot of ways when it came to figuring out how to support them in this space because of all of the other things happening around me all the time. And I'm considered an expert, right? So I was like, imagine the people who aren't, right? And so it further solidified that that there was something missing in our training in the school system in the way things are set up. Um, so yeah, I taught, I taught through, through, I kept teaching. I did my TFA commitment and then I taught a little while after that um, because the site I was at didn't work, like saying it kindly, but like the school structure, the admin, all of those things didn't work for kids. And I didn't want to leave my time teaching and only know the problems. So I taught a little bit longer in the same community at a school that did work um, so I could figure out what solutions were, were out there. Um, and then when I felt comfortable with that, I went to get my master's in ed policy at Harvard um, while already running Click Engage. I built Click Engage my third year in the classroom and started to pilot it with my students as, as an immediate solution um, to me feeling like I wasn't getting to know my kids well enough. In the ways that I needed to, I was always being reactive and I felt like we could be more proactive if we just knew where our kids stood emotionally. Like if I knew my whole class was a red that day, that's the language we use in the tool. If I knew my whole class was red that day, as a science teacher, I probably wouldn't have hosted a lab that day, right? Like there's like little things that could, that, sh that I just know would have had such a big impact. And so instead of just being like, oh, I wish this existed, I built it. And then I used it in my classroom. Um, and I wasn't sure if I was going to make it 
something more if I was going to make it a business or if it was just going to be something that I had um, done with my own students. Um, and I went into Harvard and still what that lack of certainty. And I said, if, if by second semester during my time at Harvard, um, if I had a sign that told me like this was the work I should be doing right now, I would go for it eventually full time. Um, if not, I was going to pursue my other options within the policy space. And in March, we got accepted into Accelerator. We got a $40,000 investment. And so I was like, okay, well, that's the sign <laughs> that's over there. Um, but yeah, a lot, like I always tell people my careers, like the, if you looked at my resume, you'd be like, these things are, you might be in the ed sector, but these things are all over the place, these jobs and things we've held. But like when, when you hear my story, it's actually a very linear journey. It makes complete sense as I tell you, like start to finish, like why I am where I am. But I wouldn't say it was like a ladder in terms of career. There wasn't always a natural step up. Sometimes I had to step sideways and horizontally to, to get to where I need to be. How can we get better at stepping sideways? You know, I think so many of us, especially all of our peers out there listening, might be feeling a bit like perhaps how you did back in the day, definitely how I did. You know, I felt like, oh my goodness, where am I even going with all of this? My jobs don't make sense. You know, I'm so confused about what I ultimately want to get to. I know I want to do something I'm passionate about, but I don't really know what that is. I think for you, it was a lot clearer perhaps, but you know, how can we get better at being okay with stepping sideways and not knowing? Oh my, yeah. I actually have an answer to this question very directly because I firmly believe that, especially our generation, like to millennials, we were not bred to be like ladder climbers, unless you're somebody like my, my best friend is a radiologist, right? She had a very clear career trajectory, but most of us are out here like, what do we do with these degrees and like liberal arts and things? Like, what are we doing? Um, and so I believe really firmly you're going to get to the place that you are meant to be if you um, have a personal mission. So I didn't always know what I wanted to do next, but I did always know what my personal mission was. And like I said, for me, I've realized over time that it was that I wanted to improve mental health access for kids. That could be anything. At the time, I thought it meant I was going to be a child psychologist. That's what I was in school for. And then I realized, oh, I can actually solve this problem in a classroom as a teacher. And then I realized that I could also do this work in a policy level, right? Or I could do this work as a ed tech entrepreneur, right? which is not something I ever saw myself doing, right? And so there's all these other jobs and careers and pathways that I have now gone down, but I would say at the center of all that, I have stayed true to that personal mission. And it's really grounding and it makes you feel more comfortable making those side steps, making those, those different decisions. And I don't know what I'm gonna do or where I'm gonna be in five years, but I do know that it's still gonna be on this same personal mission pathway um, with that at the center. But who knows, I could be doing something completely adjacent to, to what I'm doing right now, but still making that same kind of impact. So I think that the best thing anyone can do, especially those of this, this generation and this um, mindset, I want to like, I want to say like the ADHD millennial mindset, right? Like I can't, you're, you're not going to be in a job for five to 10 years. It just doesn't happen anymore. Um, so of this mindset, the best thing you can do is figure out what's important to you. And even if you can't define it very clearly, like you were saying that everybody has a very clear moment of, of knowing what that is, figure out what is the kind of impact you want to have in the world. What is the thing you are passionate about? And just always keep that at the center. And then you'll be, you'll feel grounded in the work that you're doing. It'll really be helpful in that way. The other thing that was like 
phenomenal advice I was given when I was um, early on in, in my career was to figure out who you want to be. So like for me right now, it'd be like, what kind of CEO do I want to be? Like who, who do I want to be? Um, and, or what role do I want to have? Find someone in that role that you admire and work backwards from their resume. So like what in there, not because not everybody takes the same path to get to the same end goal. So the best thing you could do is find a few folks. If you want to be the president of a VR company, right? Like super random, but if you want to be president of a VR company, find presidents of VR companies and pull their LinkedIn's, pull their resumes and see what kinds of things they did to get to that space. And that can give you a concrete set of next steps um, that can really help ground you when you're feeling a little bit disoriented. I love that you mentioned that, Sam, because that's literally what I did. And what I continue to do today with these interviews and these conversations, I think it's just so important to look at those who are perhaps a step ahead, just that one step. They don't have to be, you know, already there, just that one step ahead of you and then just kind of understand where they're at, understand their journey. And I think it's just so, so valuable. Oh my goodness. I love it. Oh my goodness, Sam, we could talk for days and days, but I am mindful of your time. I've got a couple of final questions for you. And the first one is, what do you believe has been your greatest failure to date? Woo. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Like all the things, everything I know. Um, so I would say, um, the first thing that comes to mind is, is my, oh my gosh, my poor first year students. Um, <laughs> I did not know what I was doing. Like even on my best day, I didn't know what I was doing. And I just feel so terrible. Like sometimes I reflect and I'm like, those poor kids, like they were failed. Like they were just failed that year. I don't, even if they didn't, like they did well their state tests, like they were still failed in terms of everything. Cause I just, I didn't know what I was doing and it's, it's really hard work. And um, those poor kids were like, just like test dummies for this horrible experiment. That was my, my teaching career. Um, so definitely, definitely that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've definitely come back strong. Oh my goodness, Sam. Over the last three years in business in particular, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received so much recognition for your work. Most notably, you were featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. You know, what are three key pieces of advice that you give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? take risks. Don't be afraid to take risks. And and you can define what that means for you. Like I am not someone who loves taking financial risks. So I took my time going full-time and I would do that again. Um, but taking risks for me looked like putting my work out there before I felt like it was ready. Um, that was, that was really, really important. I applied for things I didn't think I was qualified for. I even, even Forbes, I was like, Oh, I'm definitely not ready for Forbes list. Right. Like there were so many things that I was like, I, there's no way, but like the only way, the worst thing that can happen is that you get rejected or you get a no. And so the only way you're, and the only way you're going to get a yes is if you try. And so I think putting yourself out there and taking those risks is something I wish I had not waited as long as I did to do. Um, the other thing is, 
codify your network. And so I think a really common piece of advice people are given is like find mentors, um, lean on your network, create a space of networks and peers. And all of that is really important. The thing I wish I had done sooner was literally writing those people down, like just making a list of who those people were in my circle. Um, I think it took me a long time to realize that you had to kind of have, as you grow your network and it gets bigger to foster that network, you have to um, have some sort of rhythm and cadence with when you interact with people um, because it does get hard to do organically. You're not all in, a, in an office space. You're not all on a campus. And and I wish my the, all the people I met my first year um, running Click Engage, I half the time I don't even remember who they are. I definitely haven't checked back in with them. And and a lot of all those a lot of those people dropped gems for me and really valuable supports. And I wish I had realized sooner that I actually had to create an Excel sheet for, for, um, for <laughs> my friends. Excel. Yeah. So <laughs> that's, that's another thing is try to codify systems around, uh, tracking your network and then, and that's for anything, no matter what business you're in, what space you're in. Um, and I think finally is be audacious. I think that, and that's different from taking risks, right? Be, be audacious have the audacity to think you can change the world. Have the audacity to think that you can be um, an organization leader. Like, do not check, count yourself out before you've even started. And like, try if you have that that the audacity to say, "I'm gonna do this thing." Um, then the confidence that you have to build to be able to meet that goal you've just stated out loud is you have to, like, there's no way around it. Like you have to build that confidence up. You have to be an extremely um, confident person in that way. And I think um, that's something that a lot of us don't do. We, we settle for within our heads. We settle mentally um, before somebody else makes us settle. And I think more of us need to be bold in, this, in the statements we make and bold in the goals that we set. Um, because yeah, what it, one of my coaches will tell you that the way, the way this was actually seen best for me was with Forbes list. I remember telling somebody when I was like 22 and didn't have a business yet. So I like didn't know what I was going to do to make Forbes list, but I was like, um, I was like, that's one of my goals. Like, I'm going to be on Forbes list like by at least the time I'm 27, 28, like that. And I said this out loud to somebody knowing how like, like ridiculous I sounded and like probably they're like okay check yourself on a little bit of like um overstatement here but when I said I remember saying this to my coaches one of my advisors now years ago and I was like yeah like that's the thing I'm gonna do and so when it manifested years later my coach was like I was like oh my god like I can't believe this happened like this whole thing because obviously I was like faking that like that level of confidence at the time right and so I didn't actually think it was going to happen and he was like but you said it you said it was going to happen so you shouldn't be surprised when it did you made you set that goal and you did things in your life to reach that goal um so you made that statement you shouldn't be surprised when it when it happens when that goal is accomplished when the thing comes your dream comes true right um and and that was like really interesting for me so that's something i'm trying to do in all aspects of my life like um i'm gonna be the best wife that ever existed i'm gonna be the greatest i'm gonna be that the first mother in the world that's perfect right like i'm gonna do and it's, it's obviously like a crazy aspiration but the higher you aspire the the more likely that you're gonna you're going to reach new heights as a person. I love it, Sam. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Sam, for the incredible work you've done and that you're doing for showing us that it's okay 
to be bold, you know, particularly us women of colour, young women out there, ambitious, we have big goals, you know, it's okay to have those big goals and we actually can reach them and we can go after what we want. And for that, we really appreciate you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Amazing. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? I will say it's not what it's not. It's not, it doesn't mean that you're going to love what you do every day. I think that that is a fallacy. It, it's, it's a myth, right? You're going to have things that you don't like doing in, in, even when you're doing work you're passionate about. But the benefit of that, of doing that kind of work, it also means that you know every single day that you wake up, every single day that you're on this planet, that you're leaving behind a legacy you're going to be proud of. And it makes getting through the work that you don't want to do, getting through the hard days so much easier when you believe in what's happening and what little things you're doing, how they're going to impact other people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say that that's definitely the value of being passionate about your work. It's, it helps you get through the bad days in a, in a much easier way. Oh, I love it. Sam, oh my goodness, we've had an absolute blast. Where can people learn more about you and Click Engage? Yeah, so um, you can follow Click Engage at, at Click Engage on uh, all social media. Um, my Twitter handle is at Sam Joy Pratt. And you can also find most updates on me and our organization um, on LinkedIn if you just find me under Scott Asante, um, A-S-A-N-T-E, and you'll find me on LinkedIn and you'll see most of my updates and op-eds and all of our features on there. Amazing. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again, Sam. It's been so awesome. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest beer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.